This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl Tim, I think, very rightly said, you know, nothing of what we know now counts very much. (laughs) There is a lot we have to forget and unlearn. Right. How do you respond to that from... Where do you, how do you see that mm. personally? That's, uh, so it's a very difficult question. <laughs> um, um, I'm not good at uh, articulating things, but I can use some kind of met- metaphor. You know, the, the story the Shakespeare wrote, King, King Lear, Lear. Mm-hmm. King, King Lear. Um, in the beginning, uh, he asks, uh, his three daughters to describe the love the father, and then two daughters, you know, talks about how much they love loved him, but uh, the wisest one, Cordelia, could not really describe the love for him, and then why why she couldn't? Because maybe it's not the world, environmental artist we are. And what kind of environmental art did we make? It's probably go beyond the walls, because that's why we chose art. Something it's you cannot really talk about. We can try, we can context contextualize it because we want to understand that's you're doing, yeah. But still um cannot really grasp as whole things. You know, it's related um Without talking, you know, that kind of thing. That's what I was thinking about when you asked. I'm sorry, I'm not answering. <laughs> you are, you are. Raiko and Tim. You met in San Francisco, California. Today you're Glasgow-based, and you work together since 1985. You're known for uh, your long-term projects, which involve, and I'm quoting you here, socially engaged environmental research and practice. And from the point of view of the pluriverse, I'm very interested in that social component as well. We might get to that. Uh, Your work uh, spans a lot of things actually, artifacts, pedagogical interventions, scientific collaborations, waterfront studies, deep mapping, complex data representations, and I'm not accelerating for nothing. There is a kind of complexity and scale to your practice, and at the same time an an intuitive simplicity that is really beautiful. It it comes together, for example, in the Plein Air LP that you released in 2019, Mm -hmm. after 10 years of research. So we'll get to that in this talk. Um, currently, you have a chapter under review at Paul Grave about cutting peatland, and the title of the the chapter I'll, I'll read it out for our listeners is "Ancient Boglands and the Irish Peat Industry: Does Culture Mitigate Ecocide?" And in our previous talk, you you mentioned that you're you're looking into those three positions mm-hmm. uh, of art and activism, try to call on the three ecologies of Félix Gattari, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a beautiful way to 
to bridge mental, social and environmental ecologies. Um, and the third one is Polly Higgins, a lawyer from Scotland. Did, mm. Would you like to say something about her? Oh, she's a really important lawyer in that she's, she's working with the uh, international courts to try to, she was working with the international courts to establish a proper law of ecocide that would uh, have a real impact. Uh, she passed away three or four years ago, but she's widely referenced. And she identifies ecocide as uh, the destruction of an environment to the point where the local community can no longer make a viable life there. She's a really interesting person. She talks about the difference between policies and regulations today, which uh, kind of guide behavior and uh, make it very difficult to assign fault. And she asks for a shift in the thinking where liability is based into a developmental position where fault is would be much clearer and quicker. Mm. So she's, she's incredibly thoughtful. Mm. Yeah. And what is your attraction? Why are you interested in Polly Higgins, Michael? I run this project. It's a, it's a natural heritage and then yeah. very important site to keep. And then the Dutch government encouraged and supported. In different points of view. So what's important is... And it wasn't until... For our listeners who are not familiar with peat as a, as a source of income, it was, it was cut for fuel? To... Yeah, it, it ran the National Energy Program. So it was initiated in the early part of the century. By 1940, they were building industrial tools. After World War II, they had the tools, technology, and manpower to establish, you know, one of the largest peat cutting communities, you know, in the world. They do it at the same scope and scale in Russia. Uh, they had one company, Bordnemona, responsible for cutting peat, for building peat-fired power plants, and for uh, erecting small-scale trains to deliver the dried peat directly from the peat bog to the power plant. Yeah, and of course that was all accelerated even more during the oil embargo of 1972, so 1974. And it just kept expanding and expanding. And then this Dutch researcher shows up responding to the loss of raised boglands in the Netherlands, thinking he's, you know, going to find heaven in Ireland. And they're cutting like crazy, yeah? And he's a little depressed, but then he finds a couple that are, you know, still in their original condition. So an outside force inspires new understanding, you know, for the Irish, you know, about some of the bog lands and the opportunity to both conserve them. And then, you know, through the 90s and 2000s, they move towards rest restoring them as well. So it's a nice story. It's a nice you know, intervention, totally unintentional. I'm guessing a lot of your uh, listeners are from the Netherlands. The Stiftung for Irish Peat Bogs bought three Irish peat bogs and gave them to Ireland. You know, I, yeah. there's no more inspiring story. Yeah. 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 What, did, what did you feel when you saw the fields of cut peat? Reminded me some uh, cold mine uh, areas we saw in Germany. Um, Rather cold, yeah. Yeah, and then also 
I haven't really experienced it, but friends, very close friends, uh, were talking about uh, tabletop mining. Tabletop mining, you know, those are very severe landscape, ecocide, the world. So we're driving out this road to an old um, Christian site, yeah, and you know the story was that the um, uh, the pilgrims would walk between the bogs on a raised, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a raised geological form um, that's left behind by the glaciers. And the glaciers, of course, would have dug out the the, uh, raised bog beds as well. So they'd walk along and there'd be these huge raised mounds on both sides, you know, where basically the peat just keeps growing two and three stories above ground level. So they'd walk between them. So we're driving down the road, which has this geological form on one side but you look on the other side of the geological form and there's still one of the largest raised bogs still functioning but on the left hand side we're driving and you know a minute goes by two minutes goes by three minutes five minutes and it's still cut away it just the scale of it is massive yeah well scale is the other thing i want to touch on in, yeah. in this talk so we we got to it this but then the scale of your practice as uh, collins and goto studio um, since you met in San Francisco, California, um, you then also relocated to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, and you were involved with the Carnegie Mellon University there. You were involved with waterfront studies there. Mm. Um, and so that's what I would like to talk about. You write about it saying that um, what you do is you adopt a radical democratic approach mm. uh, to this post-industrial landscape. Um, so how does that work in practice? What's a radical democratic approach when you're doing a waterfront studies? Probably the best way to think about this is there's so much post-industrial land in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was the it was the Rust Belt. It was where it all happened. It's where Andrew Carnegie established steel. Henry Clay Frick established uh, coke, which is processed from coal. So there's lots of complicated history behind all this. But you've got this vast industrial state a state that's vacant and then you've got you know the neoliberal political culture wants to develop it all yeah so you know they're arguing about what should they say for future industry as if there is a future industry you know they never really would define what that was and then you know housing and you know can you put housing on Places that that you are know, that contaminated. Yeah, yeah. Brownfield sites is you know the, the the way they talk about it and and the way the policies and regulations are are built around that. So you know so the 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 moment for us is you know we go to this development talk about these huge you know we call them slag heaps steel steel mill slag heaps and they're what five stories tall, Rico. Yeah, and they had this landscape architect who's also an ecologist. Everybody else spoke, and then they put him up, and they'd explained that they were going to increase development, uh, the development site by 40% by filling in a stream. You know, so I figure he's going to come up and stand up and say something against that, or he's, you know, or at least he's going to. And instead, he talks about creating an artifact, a stream artifact from stormwater runoff on the property as a way of replacing Nine Mile Run, which even the industry could not destroy. Yeah, Industry was constrained by uh, uh, environmental policy, so they could pile up, but they could not destroy the stream. And the stream is connected to a 
really important forested park. So the, the, the question was, you know, so the developers are promising everything. They're going to make, you know, this is, this is just wasteland and they're going to make it all better. You know, no worries. You're not going to pay anything. You know, we're going to do it. And so, you know, I stood up as uh, Frank, Franklin, Franklin Marshall, maybe his name. I don't know. Anyway, Colin Franklin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I stood up and I, I said, Colin, I know your work. I know the amazing things that you've done with stream restoration and, and riparian development. How could you do this in Pittsburgh? And uh, he was very careful how he answered me. And then he asked to speak to this me afterwards. public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big public meeting. So he asked to speak to me later. So myself, Reiko, and a couple of other friends of ours went up to talk to him. And we also met somebody from city planning, uh, John Ram, who's quite the character. He liked the question. And uh, so we, we started a conversation, yeah. And so the, the question for us was, we had these development interests that had all the money in the world to hire all the experts they needed to tell you anything they wanted you to know, yeah. And mostly what they wanted you to know was that you could say yes to their development plan, yeah. So uh, they had a call, final call for developers. So our department head uh, sat down and talked to us and um, we made a plan to put in a, a, a proposal to be the developers of the post-industrial public realm. So we had, you know... As, uh, as a, a group of students and academics? From no, all, all academics. So all academics. three artists, an environmental historian, an architect and and Brian, our department head, had a PhD in chemical engineering, and uh, you know, so we were all on the team. And you put yourself forward as developers. As you developers, just took yeah. Took on the same title as the other developers. We we took on the exact same title, and, and but we were going to develop the post-industrial public realm. Anyway, we we got some initial money, and we started working on it. And so we we realized this post-industrial public space question was really important. But how do you bring it forward? And go ahead. Is it okay to interrupt? Um, so the, the those public meetings, um, city planners prepared many questions to the audience public, and it's all, sometimes yes and no questions. Is this right? Or you? I mean, do you have any? Uh, questions or post. Um, no real answers we could make or uh, audience could make. And that was the, the, the point we like to call them uh, um, radical democracy. Because yeah. they didn't know how to answer. So there's, you needed to give a tool to answer. The questions. They were not giving a real choice also, I guess. No, no. From a standard nature, culture, kind of wilderness model, there's no nature. It's all been, mm -hmm. it's all been buried, you know, a century ago. For example, um, the Colin Franklin's statement, all right, the stream is really polluted and very hard to fix. So let's put polluted water in the pipe yeah. and then uh, bury it and then make another stream. That was the plan. Right. And what was wrong about it? How can you say no? <laughs> and then, 
All right. And another part of the plan was, well, it was already the stream we saw、um, meanders in the、um, beautiful nature park. And then one day Tim said, but this is not the form of the stream. And I didn't understand why.、Mm. Very simple things. Water travels in the lowest part of the uh, 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 land, right? So, always stream has some、um, expansion flood plain. plain.、Yeah. So, the shape of the, the natural stream should be like that, right?、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, little by little, that kind of understanding what its nature means. So, once you bury the stream, you cannot really recreate a、yeah, <laughs> natural stream. But those languages w a s not existing amongst the communities.、Yeah, so, so, the first year is actually called the Community Dialogues. And Nine Mile run the Community Dialogues. So, How many years did you work on the Pittsburgh Waterfront Studies? So, so Nine, Nine Mile Run was three years and then some, and then Three Over Second Nature was five years and then some. So, But, ten、uh, years is your span? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> But、yes. uh, so at Nine Mile Run, it was, you know, the community dialogue, we, you know, we started doing a lot of reading, just trying to think our way through this. And、um, We realized that whole nature culture、uh, wilderness model needed to be addressed. We, we realized that we needed to talk to people about restoration ecology and what, and the standards in the US. So, what can be restored is usually something that has the same hydrological and soil conditions as something nearby that's healthy. We brought in a woman from Berkeley, California, who does、uh, stream restoration and has written many books on stream restoration. She was a s- student of、uh, Leopold, yeah?、Mm-hmm. Um, Aldo Leopold? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, Aldo, Aldo Leopold. Yeah, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So she, she's, she's brilliant. So she'd walk down the stream with a whole community group. So everything was set up so that we're bringing knowledge. To enable people to think in new ways. But we're also bringing knowledge you know, to impact our own subjectivity. So, this is, this is important. You know, so, we were talking, talking to Tom yesterday. We realized he's an architect. He does things. He actually you know, fixes things. We don't fix anything. You know, the only thing we do is shape value and meaning at, when we're at our best. Yeah? So, when people ask us why we do what we do, it's because we've got. We're, we're passionate about constantly changing our subjective understanding of the world. We also did a walk and talk with、uh, a USDA, United States Department of Agriculture agronomist who actually had,、uh, worked with Mel Chin on the revival fields. Really interesting character. And we asked him to talk about these steels, steep slope slag heaps. Which have this perfect triangle kind yeah, of yeah. shape, cone and, shape. And the, and the engineer is working with a con- conservation organization. Had been arguing that it all had to go back f- to minimum 15 to 20% slope and that it had to have six feet of topsoil on top of it before anything could grow. 
So, of course, you know, there's a whole range of arguments to that, like where does the topsoil come from? Do we really need that kind of depth to grow anything on this particular slag soil typology? So we bring in this guy, and he's just fresh from Mount St. Helens in Washington State, which was a volcanic eruption, which has almost the same granular condition as the slag and some of the same chemical compositions. And he's a very funny guy. He says, you know, he goes, he goes you know, we're scientists. He said, we spent three years up on Mount St. Helens trying to figure out what the chemical complexity was that was restraining regrowth. He said, then we started having lunch out on the site and every, every, every day we'd go out there and we'd sit there and he'd say, I, what was important was after a whole summer doing that, we all realized that our asses were warm sitting on that slope and that chances are there was something going on with water um, that had more to do with restraining plant growth than the chemistry. The chemistry has some issues. But um, so he had very specific ideas of how to address that, which were in direct opposition to what the developers were saying had to be done. Yeah. And which has to do more with bodily perception. Because what I, what I find um, quite incredible is that in that involvement over nearly 10 years with all these persons you brought in, all these subjectivity enhancing walks, let's mm. say, Um, you told us yesterday at, at dinner that we asked you, you know, if anything, if it did it change anything. And uh, you mentioned that the zoning laws changed, but that you don't want to claim that as an output of your own mm. artistic engagement. And and you just mentioned it also that you're you're there to to research that how we can encounter the world differently or or every time question our own subjectivity. Of the world, and so I think that brings me to to your other project that I wanted to address in this talk, the Plein Air LP, that you uh, released in 2019, which you describe uh, as a simple sound instrument that sits between ourselves and the leaf of one tree. Something that sounds very simple, but it took you 10 years <laughs> to get to that simple simple form in a in a way, and and it all started in Duke Forest. Yes. So maybe you, you can take us there. Yes. What happened in, in Duke Forest? Yes, year 2000. Uh, we still live in um, Pittsburgh and um, Tim made an um, appointment with uh, a scientist in Duke Forest, University Forest. They were already uh, monitoring uh, CO2 level in uh, Labrador Pine Forest. And then when we got there, uh, the scientists invited us to climb up a very, very tall structure, top of the pine trees. Um, and then he had a um, plant physiological device to uh, find out how much uh, photosynthesis the pine tree was producing. So it's a device attached to a leaf chamber Um, made of two pieces of plexiglass. So just put the pine needles between the two plexiglass and then it's a device send some air in and then air out and then the calculate the photosynthesis rate. So that day uh, it was uh, cloudy and then sunny and then the meter was pretty low when it was cloudy and then the sun showed up The meter went up, 
<laughs> very very uh, fast uh, means uh, the pine uh, needles they started producing photosynthesis and then scientists asked me to cover the leaf chamber uh, just like cloud so I did it and then uh, the meter went down immediately <laughs> and it's very um, simple um, to understand what's going on uh, but uh, for me I felt like a pine tree was react reacting or responding to my action and in plain air uh, Tim and I wanted to uh, recreate that kind of experience um, not exactly the same way, but uh, can we, you know, uh, imitate that kind of experience in the different places? Yeah, and you and you chose sound. You chose that's right, sound. Oh, uh, because it's almost infinite, <laughs> uh, and it has so many meanings. Not just the carbon dioxide, light, humidity, temperature. So we wanted to feel rather than interpret what the, this data means. So that was you know, another our goal for this project. Yeah. And, and quite a challenge. Challenge, yes, challenge, because we're not really sound artists, and we chose sound. And then it's the challenge was, what is the tree sound like? <laughs> Even they're quiet. <laughs> Because it's not a sign, it's not a symbol, it's, it's something else. It's, it's something else that opens up our perception. That also, you, you can get very direct reactions to, mm -hmm. to sound mm -hmm. in terms of the associations you get. How did you then go about, because I, I know you set up a, a huge team. Of what yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as big as the Pittsburgh stuff, uh, because we can't, so the, the struggle in the UK is trying to get funding. The research councils are much more difficult to engage. What's important is uh, the simplicity, how to get at the simplicity. You know, what we were after was the breath of a tree. Yeah. So Reiko knew from doing work in San Francisco with the Marin Wildlife Center that the health of all the little critters we were taking care of was in part monitored by listening to their breathing. So if she was worried about them, she'd get up in the middle of the night and she'd just, you know, open up the place where they were staying and she'd just sit there and listen to them breathing. So when we started working on the rivers in Pittsburgh, we also began to realize that the rivers breathe and it becomes very clear in the spring and fall where you see the exchange of, of moisture right in the air. So the question was, could we hear the breath of a tree? And when we're up on that platform... You know, on the way up to the platform, we were convinced that trees are slow, quiet critters that, you know, change over seasons and, you know, they're a little boring. And we just realized that the tree's breathing and it's like that, you know. And of course, we breathe without giving any thought. It's, it's part of our autonomous living systems. But it's a real complex biochemical exchange that's going on when we're breathing. We put all these sensors in. It's over 20,000 pounds worth of sensors. And, you know, at first, you know, it took a table this size to lay them all out, get them functioning, check how they all interrelate, and then, you know, reuse a scientific program to figure out whether or not it's all working. 20,000 pounds of sensors on the size of this table? Yes. Which is a meter by... 
two meters by one, let's yeah, say. Yeah. So something that's like what, that. 20 sensors or something? Oh, no. So it's, it's, I think it's 10 or 11 sensors in total. Wow. Uh, plus, a, plus, a, plus a computer. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, so it's a funny thing. We had a plant physiologist who heard my professorial lecture. And uh, he called me up the next day and he says, the stuff you're doing is crazy. He says, I work with this all the time. Can we get together? So we invited him for lunch and we were a little nervous because um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Rico made a big lunch and we figured big lunch, small talk, we might get away with it. Yeah. And uh, so, 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 so it was pretty funny. Um, he was brilliant. He sat down after lunch and he. Um, and he started looking at it all. And he says, can I turn it all on? I said, yeah. I said, I can bring a tree and we'll just hook it up right outside because we had a, a door. I can bring right. a tree? What do you mean? Oh, we had trees. We bought trees in pots. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we had, so we brought a tree right to the door and hooked it up. And he's sitting there fooling around with it and he's testing everything. He goes, this really works. He says, this is incredible. He says, how'd you guys figure this out? I said, well... We're artists. He says, I've got PhD students who, you know, would spend two years trying to figure out how to hook this up. He says, how long have you been working on it? I said, well, about six months, but, you know, we do have help. And so he was quite taken with it. So he brought his own 50,000 pound equipment uh, a week later to test the function of our equipment. And so little by little, we started, you know, so we had all this stuff on a table. Then we got a residency at... The Headland Headless. Center for the Arts, and it's still on a table. We're trying to figure out, you know, we're supposed to have a, a, a talk at the end of our residency, and we've got to put it into some kind of form. So we go to one of our favorite art supplies, and we buy a plein air painting easel. That's where the plein air yeah, painting easel came so from. And, and of course it makes sense, because a plein air painting easel was the original technology that artists used to leave the studio. You know, before there was... Um, lead tubes for paint before there were plein air painting easels. Mm -hmm. Artists really had to work indoors. So it's, you know, it's a, it's part of the um, visual aesthetic interface that artists have used to engage nature. So it's an instrument. It's an instrument like a microscope, an instru instrument like a telescope. So we started to think of this as an instrument of sorts. So it's interesting, when we first put it together, it was really hard to get it all to fit into a box, then we had to make a custom box, and then we had to get the sound right, we had the, we had the data working, then we had to do the sound, and the sound was being done after the data, so it wasn't real time. And then the scientist, so he's got, you know, he's got rooms that you walk into with light and temperature controls, so we can keep trees in leaf right through the winter and continue working. And I, it was it was crazy. We had a PhD student working with us, and you know we spent six months before we actually got it to work. And when we got it to work, uh, you know we were all dancing around. It was pretty exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At that point, it was ready for its first exhibition, which, which was Reiko's uh, PhD uh, thesis exhibition mm -hmm. on, on empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the question was, could could we use technology? So em em empathy is usually seen, it's understood to be human to human really easily. You know, just like we could listen to the sound of a raccoon, could we listen to the sound of a tree and develop a new form of empathic relationship that has a relationship to the CO2 oxygen cycle uh, in, in, in our lives and also has a relationship to our experiential understanding of place, space, and time. Do we have something in common with a tree? 
yeah. and maybe trees, because I know that in Scotland you, you mm -hmm. recorded um, in the Glasgow mm -hmm. uh, greenhouse, I believe. Botanics. Botanics. Yeah, botanical. Yeah. You, you, you recorded oaks, but also birches. Yes. Uh, so, Alder, and I think yeah. they, all yes. the trees right. sound different. Sound and, and can mm -hmm. we even put all the oaks under one? Umbrella or not is every tree. Mm, mm. And if, what do they have in common? Let's say these different trees and how do they? Right, trees, they're all different. Every leaf might be acting differently. Every leaf of every tree. Yeah, every tree. Like yesterday's those ropes, <laughs> the complexity, and yeah, then the, the one rope that became many many ropes. many ropes, many strings, and then tangles. <laughs> and then we like to kind of understand the simplest way, yeah, or not maybe understanding. You want to feel the tree, right? So that's the hard part. And then empathy, which is to understand the other, not intellectually. So your friend or your close family, he or she doesn't feel good. You feel it. Yeah, you see um, you know, from distance something is wrong. Yeah, and that's the kind of beginning to go next level. So the human abilities, and we all have. So I, I thought those concepts are very interesting to look at trees. So the translating data to sound, when the sound is slow and then, you know, softer, oh, probably plant is not so much acting. And then, uh, when the sound becomes faster, stronger, then feel like probably uh, trees. In a storm or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> so actually, there's a lot of acting. Some trees are more active than others. That's right. I remember in, in the headlands, there was a, we had wetland species. And what was it, a red something or other? It filled the leaf chamber with, with water. It was transpiring so much that, you know, it almost damaged all the sensors. So we had to take that tree out of the project. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then the, it was um, speaking too much. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. doing too much. And then yeah. uh, um, in California, Aspen was really, really active. And then when we came back... It brings up the question in me, like, are we ready to, as humans, are we ready to really listen? Go, from, from the work you've been doing on building empathic relations with non-human others, it's, it's been your work with your PhD. Yes. You're, you're also engaging in that now with your horse, yes. darkness, yes. your beautiful horse. Yes. In the end, it's it's just anything else. It goes back to you know personal taste, what you expect the tree would sound like. We, we struggle about it. The sound artist and then computer programmer, he really 
feels the ch change of changes of the numbers, and based on that, he uh, constructed those sound components. Uh -huh. So I feel that's pretty accurate. Yeah, but that accuracy, it doesn't matter for the audience. The audience has some other notion about the trees. Last for few, I mean, couple of years, we have been talking about the quality of the sound. Can we change to more, more sounds like a tree if it's possible? That kind of quest. But instrument has those Western or whatever, the, some already very rigid. Uh, notation. So we don't want to, you know, get into that kind of issues. And then accidentally, you know, I just, you know, looked at the Japanese ancient music called Gagaku. More like those Tibetan monks, some Man ceremonial sound. Yes. Ancient Shinto music. Mm. And then they felt like, oh, that sounds like plain air. So it goes and going, well, something we can, you know, rely on uh, as an instrument or the way the music was composed. So well, he'll only use it as a as a baseline to inform the development of a pro programmed dynamic sound system. Yeah, because because so transpiration, photosynthesis, they. They, I think you told me yesterday, they all have different rhythms. He's picking on, up on very specific data streams. When we start working on doing the sound, you know, he'll say, okay, we're going to do the bass lines. Let's do a bass line for photosynthesis. We sat in the park with a very large Japanese drum booming every time the, the data hit. So he keeps putting pieces in and taking pieces out, and Reiko's got great ears, so she can... She can she can hear things. Mm. The project's got two pro two problems. One is when we first started talking about it, we have good friends that kept saying you're anthropomorphizing nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and our response to that, based on the work in Pittsburgh, is that all you can ever do when you're dealing with others is bracket your own interest and. Oh, do your best and make it clear that you're representing somebody else, something else's way of being in the world. Yeah. With all the limitations. Yeah, we've got, we, we, we've got all sorts of limitations when we're working this way. Um, but um, to not do it is to ignore the fact that we are human. Yeah. So the only way we can understand you know, particularly nat uh, nature otherness is through the point, the references that we have as human beings. Uh, but we also have to realize how limited they are, you know, particularly, you know, there's this people like Jacob von Uchkul who talks about the sentience of a tick and its limited sensory range and appetites. So the, the, there's a question about anthropomorphizing nature that came up at the very beginning, comes up time and time again. The other thing is the sound. So the bottom line is we, we've had three different composers work with us. They've all done nice work, but it's all been very different. So the first composer did some work, and one of our friends says, well, that doesn't sound like a tree to me at all. Uh, when I think of a tree, and like she had these you know, gorgeous images in her head, and, and then an anthropologist stands up. He says, I've been working with tribal communities in the Pacific Northwest for the last 20 years. 
He says, we idealize that otherness as being beautiful and grounded. He says, but when you talk to them, they're struggling. If, you know, if, if they were going to speak, speaking as a collective, you'll also get very, often get very radical responses to dominant Western culture. So what makes you think that tree isn't a little pissed off about the way we've been dealing with them for the last, you know, three or four centuries? That's why he's making that punk rave noise. Yeah, well, so, so, so it's interesting. So the question, so part of the, the big thing with plein air is that with each iteration, we take away more. To the simplest, to, to the least indications, in the first variation, we showed some of the scientific equipment. But people just want to talk about scientific equipment. In the second iteration, there was sound things that needed to be changed because they were too linear. They made it easy to understand the data, but it didn't make it, it didn't leave enough room for the interpretation, the kind of dream time that goes into, you know, when you listen to a baby sleep. You know, there's a moment where you're listening, you're listening attentively, and then you're just kind of enjoying being with the baby. But it's still indicative, yeah. So I, you know, I do. I wake up at night and I listen to Reiko breathing. Yeah, it's just, it's just what we do. We don't need all that software and all that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Apparatus. Yeah. That's right. But the question is, all those million pounds. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, but, a, it's a lot of energy to to listen to the breath of a tree. Yeah. If I can, if I can yeah. put that in as a yes, critical. Yes. Yes. But but it also but it also ties into you know. So my mom was dying. Yeah. Um, she's very sick. She's tied up to all this equipment. And the doctor basically comes in and tells us the day before Christmas that she's dying and she's not going to be with us in a day or two. So I go in the night before and I, I read her favorite book to her. And I mean, you know, I'm just watching the data readouts and her heart quickens when the plot thickens. <laughs> you know, there's stuff going on. And I, but I wasn't sure about it, but I read it to her for four hours. And the next day, my dad comes up the stairs. And as he's coming, he had a very distinctive cough. He coughs. Her heart rate goes up like a rocket. And I pointed it out to the doctor. And he says, no, 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 no. There's nothing to it. I said, of course there's something to it. Yeah, he says, no, she's, she's not with us anymore. I said, she's absolutely with us on some level. So, you know... Yeah. That confirmed some of the doubts we were having about plein air, that there are ways of being that instrumentation can reveal to us that's important. Yeah. Mm. So I continued to read to her that afternoon. And her, her heart hadn't stopped pumping, but they thought she was no longer with us. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I want to move on to darkness. Your horse, Reiko, because you've had darkness now, I think, a couple of years? Mm, for nine years. Nine years mm -hmm. now, yeah. And you decided to bring darkness mm -hmm. into your life mm -hmm. because you, you had this realization that mm -hmm. if in order to have empathic relations with non-human others, mm -hmm. it's all about communication and, and somehow mm -hmm. horses. Mm -hmm. So my, my understanding mm -hmm. of it, I'm, I'm involved in uh, equine-facilitated coaching, mm -hmm using horses to understand ourselves better. How has darkness coming into your life mm -hmm. 
maybe shed light <laughs> on <laughs> a- aspects of your practice and, and also your collaboration with, yes. with Tim, because yes. suddenly it's not a duo anymore, suddenly there's darkness. <laughs> That's right, yes. Also, yes. plus the trees, plus so you, your world is like right. becoming more and more multiple, yes. pluriversal, I would say, between the two of you. So yes. what happened with darkness coming in? We have been in UK since 2006, five, 2005, six around that time. Um, but uh, it takes a, a long time uh, to be a part of a, part of the environment, uh, to understand uh, how people live, how the natures are. Yeah, until nine years ago, I was still very, very foreigner. Um, and then horses are you know, part of the landscape in, in the UK. Uh, uh, it won't happen in Japan <laughs> easily because no uh, enough land. You want to know the landscape differently. Though, yes, too. yes, I want. So the horse became kind of intermediator because we look at the things one way. Even you know we read many things, but still one way, and we like to gain different ways to look at the world. So that's the horses to to become together. You know, riding horse or even being with just being with them. You know, uh, there is a moment becoming together, but in order to do that, we kind of have to throw all other, you know, the, the chores and then the uh, debris from our lives, right? So there's a, some kind of way to engage. It's uh, taking all the other stuff, and I think that's important. And then, you know, their, the, the, their straightness, you know, they have a very straight spirit, and that, like, shiatsu, <laughs> you know, when we are really meandering and then doubting, it's just to, you know, um, um, make it straight because of their, 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 uh, their spirit, spirit, spirit uh, appearance, I mean, spirit way to engage with other uh, beings. Mm. <laughs> Said it a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain, and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.